Thank you. Hello. Tracy, welcome to Cornwall. Thank you very much. Thank you. You don't strike me as a country girl. <laughs> I don't know why you say that. <laughs> it was your face when I suggested you go in a boat tomorrow and look at seals. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. So, have you been to Cornwall before? Yes, quite a few times. Uh -huh. Yes, quite a few times. Right. Okay. But <laughs> it strikes me, though, that you are, um, you are a born writer. I mean, most people know you from your music, but clearly all the time you were doing music, you were writing because you were writing lyrics. That's true. I mean, you know, people sometimes do think, oh, it's an, it's an odd move to have gone from being a singer to be a writer. But yes, you're right. I was always writing songs. Uh, um, and, you know, so getting used to um, conveying emotions in a particular style... Um, I think the thing I got into the habit of being a songwriter was being very economical with words. You get very used to condensing everything into um, pithy rhyming couplets, ideally leading up to a chorus. Um, <laughs> so when I started writing books, the thing I had to work on most was actually allowing myself to be a bit more expansive. To go on. To go yeah. on a bit. Yeah. I kept checking yeah. myself, thinking, oh, this is too much. Too many words. Yes. Um, but, you know, with prose, you do have a lot more space to play with. And so it means you can approach things in a different manner. It gives you a kind of freedom that you don't have in songs. But before you started consciously writing songs, did you go through a poetry writing stage as a teenager? No, no. I don't think I ever really wrote poetry. I think as soon as I started writing, um, you know, sort of what I considered to be creative words, they were in the form of songs. You were already dancing around the bedroom with your yeah, hairbrush. Basically. Yeah, basically. Th yeah. I think I immediately thought if I was going to write it, um, it might be better if I sang it as well, rather than just make people read it. I think before so. we go any further, you should yeah. give, us, give us just a taste of the... Well, I will, because I'll read a bit, because the other thing I was writing all that time was my diaries. Um, and in this book, which is about my suburban childhood and teenage years, I make quite a lot of use of my diaries. So I'm going to read a section from the beginning of the book, which gives a flavour of <laughs> what my wonderful diaries were like. Going right back to the start, I tried to picture myself on the day I first decided to keep a diary. 29th of December 1975, when I was 13 years old. I must have been given it as a Christmas present. And although it was for the year 1976, its first few pages invited entries for the end of the previous year. So I began as the old year ended, just before it turned to face the new. I would have settled down with a pen, riffled through the year's worth of blank empty pages before breaking it open at the very start and then, 29th December 1975, went to St Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. That's it. That's all she wrote. No starting with a bang, no announcing herself to the world or to a future reader. No declaration of intent. Instead, I draw a circle and leave it empty, my eye caught by an absence. And it wasn't an aberration. I carried on in that style for years, making countless entries about not buying things, <laughs> not going to the disco, not going to school, a piano lesson being cancelled, the school coach not arriving. 
It's a life described by what's missing and what fails to happen. My second ever entry is just as banal. 30th of December, went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. <laughs> 1st of January, 1977, went to Welling with mum and dad to get some boots, but couldn't get any. 8th of January, Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try to get her ears pierced, but she couldn't. <laughs> 19th of January, 1979. Deb and I went to St Albans, tried to get some black trousers, but couldn't find any nice ones. 17th of March. Tried to go to the library, but it was shut. Was it me or was it my surroundings? Was it just that I was the dullest child in existence, noticing nothing, experiencing nothing, thinking nothing? Or was it at least in part an embodiment of something in the air, something vague and undefined? Even when I write about it now, I realise that the time and place in which I grew up, 1970s suburbia, is easier to define by saying what it wasn't than what it was. Brookman's Park was a village, but not a village. Rural, but not rural. A stop on the line. A space in between two landscapes that are both more highly rated, the city and the countryside. A contingent, liminal, border territory, in between land. I'm just going to read another bit from towards the end of the book. I'm sort of going to bookend it. Um, so it tells a lot of the story of my teenage years and what it was like growing up in this nothingy place. And... A lot of it was characterised as well by my teenage relationship with my parents, which was kind of typical in many ways, um, but quite fractious. Um, and I just want to read a section from the end about the later years of that. The distance that had grown up between me and my parents in my teens never quite closed up. And it was due in part to my increased education and change of lifestyle. Like so many similar parents... They'd wanted me to do well at school and then go to university, to take those chances they'd never had. Then when I did, it turned me into someone they thought they couldn't understand. Later on, they'd be proud of my musical success, but perhaps more because it was success and therefore respectable than because it was artistically interesting to them. They liked the music when it was more mainstream and they liked the gigs at the Albert Hall because they were tangible proof of achievement and status. And they enjoyed the sense of pride and reflected glory at the backstage party. And all of this was soothing and reassuring to them, because it took away some of the fear that they had lost me to rock and roll. But if we don't know our parents, I do also wonder whether they ever know us. In later years, after my break to have children, when I went back to music, and recorded an album called Out of the Woods in 2007, I sent them a copy, expecting a phone call or something a day or two later, hoping for parental praise, as you always do, as you still do, even when you're a grown-up and a success and a mother. It never came. They never mentioned it or said anything about the record. My sister Debbie told me later they'd found it hard to understand and I was never sure what exactly was hard to understand. The music? Or the reason for making a record? The need? Perhaps that. Later still, 
when I wrote Bedsit Disco Queen. My dad's only comment to Debbie was, I never knew Tracy was so into music. <laughs> Which still makes me laugh till I cry for all it says about how much we can remain a complete and utter mystery to those who should know us the best. And then again, in even later years, he would say to Debbie, in reference to something or other I had done, some inexplicable action, some bizarre life choice. And this, remember, when I was a middle-aged, middle-class woman, married to the man I'd been with for over 30 years, with three children, he would say, oh, Tracy, she's from another planet. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. And thank you for that second section as well, because that goes to the heart, really, of what makes this memoir so special. Because you could, you've got the, the, the comedy chops, you could very easily simply have done a comic revisiting of your teenage childhood, because it is very, very funny. It is funny. I mean, I, you know, I, I like finding the funny in things. Mm. To me, it's part of how a lot of us relate to life, how we try and cope with things. You know, finding the humour and the wit in things is important to me. But I never think that cancels out there being anything serious no, or anything also, underlined. So I, but also true. a lot, a lot of this humour is rooted in, yeah, in rooted pain in or isolation. Kind of or, yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, but uh, what I found so moving about this book, though, was that, yes, there's this very comic narrative of, of, of a girl who's kind of like a changeling in a way, mm. um, but doesn't quite know, she knows she's special, but not quite sure yet how or what or what, what shape it's going to take. So initially it's expressed as failing to buy belts. <laughs> <laughs> endlessly. But around that, of course, is the narrative of you now revisiting. So that's you're, you're revisiting your parents at the age, when they're the age you are now. Exactly. So that telescope. Yeah, there's lots of different layers of, powerful. you know, time, time frames within it. Um, yeah, you're right. I'm now exactly the age my parents were when I was this angry, rebellious teenager. Mm. And I've now had the experience of parenting, parenting. angry, rebellious <laughs> teenagers. Um, so, you know, I come at it now. The diary entries are great because they give me the kind of voice of who I was back mm. then. Here's the direct, yeah. unadulterated voice. This is how much I hated them. So there are lots of entries, you know, that describe rouse and how furious I was. Um, but at the same time, I'm now recounting all that from the position of where I am now. And I do now have a different perspective. I have, you know, a much greater understanding of the people they were, mm how they ended up in this place which I couldn't wait to escape. And yet when I look back now and think about their lives, both my parents had grown up in London and lived there throughout the war. They both so they experienced moved, the they blitz, they bombed. So they escaped as a place of post-war London. Yeah, oh. moving to a place of safety. You know, they bought a little suburban semi with a garden. Um, of course now that makes perfect sense to me. I, I can mm. see the... Mm the logic, which at the time I just couldn't. All I could see was that we were half an hour down the railway track from London where everything was happening <laughs> yes. and they used to live there. So and they brought me here. So the, for you, the big, the big city, the nearest you had was St Albans, which yeah, is not exactly I know. throbbing in the 1970s. Well, it wasn't throbbing. We made the best of it. You know, there's also, there's a lot of stuff in, in the diaries that I remembered, which was about how partly because we were just at one remove mm. from the actual big city where things were happening, we did actually become 
quite sort of make your own entertainment yes. about things, so which was whole where a lot of the whole burgeoning, you know, punk music scene and post-punk independent scene, I think, took its energy from. Right. Kids who were just close enough to be inspired by it, but actually had to then get on and do it themselves. So that's what we did. So. But also you clearly had some really good teachers. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got you, you escaped, you went to uni, you clearly adored books. So where were the yes. where was the book love coming from? I was always reading from as from childhood. I mean, I was a massive reader. I went to the kind of school where there weren't big expectations on mm. what I was gonna do next. Um, it was a girls' comprehensive school, quite unusual. Right. Um, and so you, know, you all did typing. We all did literally do 70s, typing. Yeah. Um, it was the seventies, and the expectation was that if you weren't going to become a secretary, in the phrase, at least it would be something to fall back yeah. on. Um, well, you know, you which and everyone I... used to say to me, "You'll have something to fall back <laughs> on." Well, terrifyingly, you and I are exactly the same age. <laughs> And I learned typing as well. Not, be, not. I never knew it would become a job, but it was, yeah. it was a job. And that was still a thing you could do in the seventies. You got yeah. those Pittman's books, and you worked Absolutely. your way through. And what's terrifying now is you talk to school kids about you know when you were their age and learning typing, and they look at you as if you're talking about a spinning wheel or something. <laughs> it's, it's completely removed. My kids everything. are absolutely horrified by all the things we did at school. The fact that we did the two main subjects seemed to be typing and cooking. Um, which, you know, is, is that an education, <laughs> they think? Well, life skills. <laughs> basically but, preparing you But did your you school a have a good library? Life. No. Where, so where were you no. getting these books? Um, St Albans. Well, yes, I used to go to the library in St Albans mm. and Hatfield. And I went through a stage as a teenager of just precociously reading all kinds of stuff that I couldn't possibly understand. You know, I was reading Camus and Sartre and just like, walking around with them under my arm, <laughs> Well, they didn't spoil the silhouette of your um, jeans. Really. But, it, <laughs> but I was just, you know, a sponge for things, really. But I, I have to say, honestly, I didn't get a lot of encouragement mm. to go to university and do all this kind of stuff. I did a lot of it in spite of those expectations. So did your, siblings, did your older siblings not take the same route? No, they didn't. Right. Um, so I was the first one to go off to uni, which, again, I think accounts for some of that breach between me and my parents, you know, again, they were very aspirational in the sense of wanting me to um, to go because it would lead to a kind of certain, you know, improvement in mm. lifestyle or status or something. I think the idea that you would go just for the sake of learning itself, yeah. you know, that was mysterious to them. But another thing from the 70s that really jumps out is how unprotected you were. Yeah. I mean, I'd love you. Could you read us? There's a sequence about going clubbing. Yes. Well, Early adventures. Clubbing. Clubbing. <laughs> it's a village disco, frankly. Um, let me see if I can find it. There is. I mean, I when I But it's started, clubbing at the age when it seems incredibly yes, glamorous. Yes, 13. I was, I was very shocked when I read my diaries again because I'd, well, I'd remembered shocking, my parents as being incredibly strict and that I'd had no freedom, never been allowed to do anything. And then I read these sections which come from... Um, 1976 when I started going to, I'll just read a little bit of it um, it was my summer of this is in 1976 it was my summer of disco and it began in May when I started going to the Brookman's Park Hotel where a disco took place every Saturday and Monday night I would often go twice a week with a friend or with my cousin Marion punk was happening but not yet for me and not here so instead we danced to soul records Although the whole point of the night was the moment when the DJ slowed things down and the dance floor would empty, girls to one side, boys to another, and we'd wait, 
staring at the floor resolutely over the shoulder of any boy who might seem to be approaching until one would mutter, want to dance, without ever making eye contact. And we'd head back out for a slow dance, hands on his shoulders to keep him at arm's length if I wasn't sure, or clasped behind his neck if I was keener. And his hands would be on the back of my waist or resting on my hips, or they'd slide down, and later I'd write WHT in my diary for wandering hand trouble. <laughs> the slow songs were always the same. If you leave me now by Chicago, I'm not in love by 10cc, without you by Nilsson. And I was only 13, but the boys were older, always older. 24th of July, Creep asked me to dance again, but I said no. Found out he's called Tim and is a policeman, yikes. <laughs> I was 13 and he was a policeman. I keep thinking about what this means and what it says about the time and the place. I picture myself, and I look like one of those girls in the Top of the Pops audiences, grinning at the camera, caught in the too-close embrace of an over-familiar DJ. I had shoulder-length hair parted in the center, and with a fringe pushed back in wings that flicked out to either side of my forehead. The next layer of hair fell to the side of my head like spaniel's ears. I wore an A-line knee-length denim skirt with side pockets and a wide three-buttoned waistband circled by a thin plastic belt. On my feet, a pair of denim sandals, rope-soled, each foot bearing an applique butterfly. I was slim but self-conscious. I was trying hard but felt plain. Did I look 13 or even 14? I suspect that to the men and boys I met, I just looked like a bird. Fair game, all the same. Wonderful. But it did startle me reading those passages. And, you know, I, there's a bit more in there and other diary entries, mm. which made me realise that all my first encounters with boys were actually with much older boys yeah. and men, frankly. But was um, that and the norm? no one seemed to notice yeah. or think it was weird. There was much less checking, really, on your age. I also talk about how um, we drank in all the same pubs that all the grown-ups drank in, and no one ever stopped us. Mm. Um, and then we would get in someone's car and drive to the next village to another pub. So it's this bizarre mixture of, um, it's a kind of freedom, but it's a freedom that's not particularly liberating in that we were in a state of ignorance, which people called innocence. They thought we were innocent, which we weren't, but we were definitely ignorant. We didn't have any actual sense of our own um, boundaries or how to police them whether we were doing things because we wanted to be doing them or whether it was just that's what was expected. And no sense um, of power. No sense of power at all. Where the power should be. No. no. Um, and that had surprised me. I had kind of forgotten that. And I do think it's very much, as you say, it is, does seem very 1970s. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of, um, there's nothing to protect you. And no. reading, reading those diaries afresh, did you re-examine your, your mother's attitude to you I at think, the time? I think, honestly, they were they were actually the innocent ones. Um, I think they thought, because they'd sort of kept us in this state of ignorance and because there were, there were lots of rules. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, I couldn't have bought 
brought a boy home and taken him up to, into my bedroom and shut the door. That wouldn't have been allowed. Um, so they, I think they thought they were policing things, but they were just very unaware of what was actually going on. And youngest, out there in youngest the world siblings often do get away with. Do you think so? Relative, well, I'm the youngest of four. Yes. I know oh, I maybe it was that. They're that. probably That's just so, exhausted. Yeah, they're tired. Aren't they? they're they're just kind of, oh, they'll probably be fine. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about Brookman's Park. Yeah. Because it was a failed social experiment, wasn't it? Or did well, it was a failed garden city, essentially. I mean, as I say, it wasn't a village. It wasn't a place that grew up, you know, that had been a village with an actual reason to be mm. there that then spread. And it also wasn't just the outskirts of the city. It wasn't that kind of suburbs. Um, it was built in 1926, the station opened there, and they started building the houses through the 30s. And Welling Garden City was built just down the road, five miles away at the same time. And Brookman's Park was planned to be the same kind of size development. So they started building these sort of, had the station, they started building these houses, and they built the village green and all the shops around it. So it had absolutely everything, you know, a butcher, a baker, um, fishmongers, a greengrocers, a chemist, a GP, a dentist, a church, a primary school, a secondary school. I mean, everything that would serve quite a big community. Mm. And then the Green Belt legislation came in and it was starting to encroach too near to the you know, green land between there and London. And so development stopped. The last houses were built in the early 50s and that was it. So it was supposed to be a lot bigger than it ended up being. So it ended up being this strange, artificially created little village that was smaller than it was meant to be, had everything it needed, which meant it became completely insular, kind of turned in on itself. And presumably at school, you, you all knew each other and you knew... Everyone uh, knew everyone. Yeah. You know, there was no one... If you look at the population figures as well, they stay the same for years and years and years. No one ever leaves and no one new ever arrives. There was an absolute scandal when a Chinese restaurant opened. <laughs> I mean, literally, I can still remember the rows at home. Um, you know, people saying that was it. They were, they were going to leave now. Gone. But, and so when you went, when you went um, to the, a disco... Yeah. That, was that in Brookman's Park? I mean... It was. So you must have known the policeman. Well, no, or... I think the old... See, I think they, they probably were bust in or something. I don't <laughs> know. They just knew there's this village of these teenage girls. These unsuspecting girls. Yes. I think they, they did come in from a little way away, probably. Didn't know who they were. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about boredom. Yes, reading... there's, a, there's a lot of that Yeah, well, diaries. reading this and Bedsit Disco, I just... The, in both of them, you, you keep thinking, actually, boredom is really useful for mm. encouraging creativity. And that really, I kept thinking, well, actually, if Tracy had been living in London, she wouldn't have grown up the same. Well, I think that as well. I do ask myself, OK, you know, I railed against this place, but there was something about, as I say, you know, the absence of culture and entertainment being mm. provided for you that made us start creating our own. There are, around. there are pages and pages of my diary where I just go, I am so bored. Next day you turn the page, I am so bored. <laughs> turn the page, I'm still bored. <laughs> but you were um, reading Kind Cammy. of howls of boredom. I was probably yeah, yeah, feeling yeah. a bit existential despair. But yeah, I, I think nowadays there's, there is a slight danger that we start to sort of fetishise that notion of past boredom and it having been a spur to creativity. I think because we worry that today's young people have it too easy and, you know, everything is at the touch of a button, entertainment, mm. and that will somehow destroy creativity. I'm wary of that, I have to say. 
Um, as, a, as, as a mother? Or, yes, as yes. a mother, because I can see that my kids are creative. Yeah. Um, and also, do you know what? A lot of the time the boredom was just incredibly depressing. Mm. It wasn't always mm. inspiring. Um, you know, there were days and days when actually it was stultifying. You just, you became so weighed down by it that, you know, you couldn't think of doing anything. So I think it's a mixed blessing. I, I, I can see how there were aspects of it um, that, that did, in, in perhaps the right circumstances and in perhaps the right people, it did sort of provoke them to kick back against it and do something. But honestly, I wouldn't wish my teenage years <laughs> on anyone. <laughs> but do you feel that with, with hindsight, because obviously boredom is, doesn't make you creative at the time, but I think what it does sometimes is to give you a full larder of... If, if only of rage at your parents yes. that you can draw upon when you start to create. I mean, the other fascinating thing is, you know, reading all these diary entries about how bored I was, and yet, actually, when I read the diary entries back also, there's quite a lot happening. Mm. Um, there is something about being a teenager that I think sometimes you define as boredom something that's actually much more intangible, that's actually sometimes just uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen yeah. next. Do you know what I mean? And, and when you're older, you look back on that, and it actually seems quite exciting. It's why I think older people envy young people, because we look back and think that that's actually freedom, that not mm. knowing mm. exactly who you are, not knowing exactly what your life's going to be, sounds exciting once you're older and things are a bit more yes. set in stone. But when you're young, I think that feeling is actually very unsettling. And sometimes you all, I can remember that feeling of feeling almost absent. Um, back to the diary entries about things not happening. I felt it about myself as well. I just wasn't sure who I was or who I was ever going to be. Was I ever going to be able to be someone concrete and definite? And, um, and did you feed, did you have romantic dreams of something? I mean, did you watch <laughs> old Judy Garland films on the television or... I didn't. I mean, like like most people my age, I watched a lot of Top of the Pops. Yeah. Um, I don't think I ever imagined myself inside it. I watched it very much as a fan. Um, I consumed a lot of music for a long time as a very dreamy, romantic mm. fan. Mm. I, I felt like it was acting out for me a lot of the sort of repressed yearnings. So whether it was listening to... Um, punk records, which were brilliant for expressing the anger that I couldn't express. Well, they make your parents angry. Yeah, and you'd put it on, on, and you wouldn't really have to <laughs> say anything. You could just dump the needle on it, and it would scream for yeah, you. So that was yeah. very useful. Or I'd listen to Bruce Springsteen, and it would be about you know tormented losers in cars, and mm. I'd, I'd just think that's me too. <laughs> um, so I think I learned how powerful music was for expressing things that you couldn't quite articulate. At first, I didn't have any sense at all that I was going to do that. I thought I was going to just um, be an audience member. I definitely had a sense when I went to university that perhaps I would get a degree in English and move into journalism, and then maybe they'd let me be Julie Burchill. Ah, um, yes, and okay. I could join the NME or something. <laughs> so that I think, honestly, that was more my goal at the time than actually thinking I'd end up on the stage. And how honest do you think your diaries were? <laughs> uh, the reason I ask mm. is because I know a lot of teenagers, when they're writing in their diaries, even if they don't quite admit it to themselves, they know their mother will probably read them. Yeah. So do you think when you were shouting, I'm so bored on the page, you were 
there's definitely stuff edited out of the diary, and I definitely thought my mum read it. Um, there's a there's a bit I circle around where there's actually one day where I left a whole blank page because I didn't want to write in that day's entry. Um, and it was interesting because I describe it in the book, and I talk about how, in some ways, I I see it as two different things. It's a sort of cowardice. It's a sort mm. of you know not daring to say this in case someone sees it. But it's also it says something to me as a writer now about being in control of your material yes. and how a lot of writing memoir, especially, is choosing what you're going to tell people and what you're not. So that kind of withholding also seems quite powerful to me now. But when I sent it off to my publisher, his first question was, are you going to tell us what was on the blank page? And I was like, oh, God, no. No, 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 no. That still seems to me actually really an important part of the whole writing process, that you're... You remain in control of and that material. You went on record around the time this was published as saying that it, it was an attempt to be more honest because you, you felt Betsy Disco Queen had slightly romanticised your teenage yeah. self and made things I think look because I wrote smoother. yes because I wrote that really as a, a memoir about a career. It's not mm. really a particularly personal memoir. It's very much the story of um, when I started in music. The, the actual section on my childhood and teens is quite brief and even the bits about my teenage years are really all it's just me looking for clues as to how I'm going to end up where I get to and I thought actually there's more here I have slightly glossed over it I've made it sound like it was inevitable you know that this progress took a sort of steady course and life isn't like that really is it it's much more messy much messier um, and but I the two books are really interesting side by mm. side because in a way, Betsy Disco Queen feels like the story of the building of a persona. Yeah. Because in order to cope with the huge exposure of performance, we all need a, a persona, a safe person, a version of yourself. Yes. Which can be very honest, but not entirely honest. And But this feels as if you're, you're digging behind that. Yeah, I mean, there are mm. layers and layers. I mm. think you asked me just now about the thing of being honest in a diary, and I think... That struck me as well when I reread them. It wasn't just the um, anxiety about my mum reading it. There's also that sense when you write a diary that you are, as a teenager, embarking on this construction of your persona. Mm. And so sometimes I didn't put things down or I completely reframed something that had happened because I'm busy on this work of becoming this person so there are you know there's lots more emphasis after a certain point on the books i'm reading and the sort of art i'm into because i'm i'm having this idea well maybe i'm gonna actually be someone who's interested in art and books and music um and i stopped making notes about not being able to buy pairs of shoes <laughs> as though i think oh that's all a bit trivial i won't do that anymore and dare i ask how your family have reacted to this well I'd say towards the end of the book, you know, both my parents had died by the time mm. I came to write it. And I do think... Was that how you could it's write a, Yeah, it? absolutely. It's a right. classic case of, you know, a book that I couldn't have written knowing that they were there over my shoulder and knowing that at some point I'd have to let them read it. Um, so I didn't have to confront that. Um, I sent it to my sister when it was finished, um, just almost to say, you know, am I going mad? <laughs> was it like this? <laughs> 
Uh, well, because notoriously agreed. siblings, you have yeah. the same childhood, but you don't. You, but you don't. And their memories, and their emphases. My sister different. said, no, that's right. That's exactly how it was. <laughs> so she'd been born <laughs> so that was quite good. She was two years older than me. So right. we did have quite similar experiences, yeah. And, now, and you did, in turn, escape back to London. So what's quite interesting was the way you, in this book you revisit your, not only your child, but your parents in yes. their younger selves. But then you've reversed the process by getting the hell out. I've moved back. I moved well, back, back into London, basically back down the line. I now live and have lived for 30 odd years, a mile from where my mother grew up. Um, and not just my mother, but a few years ago, I decided to do the whole research your family tree thing, mm. which is quite easy to do nowadays online, and found that not only had my mother lived in Kentish Town, but generations of her family had lived there. Amazing. Um, back for a couple of hundred years. So it made me think, yeah, I knew I was a Londoner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't meant it to was be. It was just a suburban <laughs> interlude. It was just a <laughs> mad moment. Can we talk, uh, before I throw you to the mercy of the audience, about um, the whole business of becoming a writer? Mm. I mean, I, obviously, you haven't stopped being a musician, mm. but you have drawn a, a halt to public performance of your music, and yet, mm. as a writer now, you are expected to perform. How does it get? Obviously, yeah. you know, the adrenaline. Oh my God! It's a North Coast. It's not well, the same. Patrick, you saw but, me backstage getting into character. Well, yeah, she, was, she needed it that. It was a wine. long, she really long that process. Wine. I couldn't speak to anyone for an hour. Um, you know, there was a lot of work went yeah, into getting yeah, me up yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't consider this performing really. I think. You know, the difference is we're back to the construction of selves. Mm. The, the thing about these events is you just really do sit and chat as yourself. The thing about doing a gig is you do actually put on a persona. I think there's something about being a musical performer that, especially within the world of pop, mm -hmm. um, and there were times towards the end of our touring career after I'd had the kids, and by then, I was into my late 30s. And even at that stage, I was starting to feel, this is quite weird now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm out here doing a gig and then going back and putting toddlers to bed. And this feels a bit weird. Yeah, um, you, don't so wanna, you don't want to turn into Madonna. That's well, oh, God, I would give anything <laughs> to turn into Madonna. <laughs> don't say that. Um, sure but she, it wasn't for me. I'm sure I, she feels the same about you. I found the whole... I don't know. I began to find that actual... The, I was joking about it just now, but I mm. think in the musical context, that thing of building up to the moment when you go on stage, and then, you know, it's a very heightened experience doing a gig, yeah. and then the coming back down again. And the coming down is I very slow. It, yeah, I found it really difficult. Mm. Um, and I've talked a lot about suffering from stage fright, and that's part of it, but it's not the whole story. Right. You know, there's lots more to it, which is to do with it being... Um, there needs to be a need to do it. I think when you start making music, when I started as a teenager, I had stage fright even then, but I was so desperate to be on a stage and play a guitar at the back of the stage. You know, I wasn't even the singer at that point. Just to be out there doing it was so exciting. Mm. And I do think, unless you still have that burning desire to do it, I don't think you should be doing it. You shouldn't do it just because it's... A career. No, and it's, and it's very interesting because it's your, your continuing career as a musician by making it, in a sense, private, by, by recording. But it's, yeah. it's, and people can enjoy it in their own private states well, as well. Well, I always say to people, you know, it's making records and not touring. It's like the difference between being an actor who makes films but doesn't do theatre. Mm. So I'm just yeah. a film star now, but also, <laughs> you know, Just oh, accept. Yeah, yeah, accept. Accept, accept. <laughs> but it, it's also... 
quite close to writing books as well now. So it's something oh, you it can is. do, and you it's, can obsess about in private. Yeah. And, and it's then, controllable, mm. you know, and I suppose this does say something about me as a bit of a control freak of my work. I actually do like the studio very much. I find the uh -huh. studio a really liberating place to be. A lot of musicians hate it you know, find it too restrictive. They like to be playing live. They need the feedback from an audience. I really don't. I really I feel much freer in the studio where you can experiment, your heart's content, and when you feel it's what you meant and it sounds how you want it, then you just give it to people. And then they can go and listen to it in the privacy of their yeah. own home or on a dance floor. Or on a dance floor. <laughs> and is there another book coming along? I hope there is. Yeah, there you, is. You've got your, your lovely New Statesman column. Is, yes. that, is that going to be collected into a book, do you think? I don't or know. Is, is that too... Because that's quite <laughs> interesting, because that's very now. You're, con you're writing about things that are happening to you right now. Yes. Rather than memoir. I mean, memoir. that's interesting, because, again, it's quite diary-like. Mm. Um, I realised after doing it for... I've been doing it for five years now, so that's quite a lot of columns. And after a while, you realise that it, to me, it's almost become my form of diary keeping. Um, you know, sometimes I've got an actual topic that I want to write yeah. about, but a lot of weeks there isn't any. I'm not, I haven't got a burning desire to tell you what I think about homework or something awful. I'm not one of those columnists anyway who rants about something. So often it's just a diary entry about what have I done this week and, you know, what's it sort of made me think about. But it's often so very funny. I love well. writing a column. It's, I mean, I've, I, I said yes to it when I was offered, thinking it would be um, a good discipline, really, as a writer, you know, having to keep writing, not getting into that lazy thing of thinking, well, I could actually have a break now. Yes, or just go on a book tour. Just go on years. a book tour. <laughs> <laughs> Live off canapé yes, for two years. Yes, exactly. And how about fiction? Might you write a novel? I don't think so. Um, but again... It'd be foolish to say never. I've never tried, mm -hmm. is the honest answer. And to me, it's... I mean, people say this to me about songwriting, which I always found I just somehow instinctively knew how to do. But to me, writing a novel seems like a magic trick. I literally don't know how it's done. And I've read so many of them, you'd think I would have absorbed something, but I, I just don't even know how you start. <laughs> Tell <laughs> but <you're>, me! <laughs> <laughs> but Naked, Naked of the Royal Albert Hall was the most fantastic sort of examination, and it's almost encyclopedic, really, about singing and the history of singing and also different... Your analyses of different singers and their profoundly, often profoundly emotional mm. approach to singing. And it made me think, oh, I wonder if Tracy might write a book about... Um, so specifically, you know, song movements or the writing of songs or the blues or something. So, yeah. Well, at the moment, um, I'm working on. A, I am working on a new book, which is nonfiction again, um, which is a sort of biography of someone else. It's not strictly memoir this time. But I'm writing a book about um, a woman called Lindy Morrison, who was the drummer with an Australian band called the Go Betweens, who was a very good friend of mine. And she has a really interesting life. So I'm writing a book that's partly the story of her life, but is also a story about our friendship. Oh, lovely. Um, and through the sort of prism of that friendship, I'm exploring lots of things about, you know, women working in music, um, how women sort of, what their later careers are like after that kind of career, you know, being an older woman in that position. So there's lots of stuff that's coming out. Can't wait. Yeah. Brilliant. That's good. Do we, do we have... 
questions from the audience. Am I supposed to hand the mic over at this well, point? We, we will I think do we've, a got, we've got a microphone shortage. I want the audience to start thinking about things <laughs> they might like to ask you. Okay. Well, we have to so do what are we doing? We, you're throwing, throwing yours to me. You have to hand me. that over. There we go. You can just write. Okay. And I'm now silent. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. I can point. I can do that. Are you okay with that? Right, everyone's gone terrified. Presumably, there are teenagers now in Brookmans Park who perhaps oh, have read your Is that working? Book. Yes, we can hear you. Yes, can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Oh. Presumably, there are teenagers now in Brookmans Park growing up who yes. perhaps have read your book. Have you had any feedback um, from them? I haven't had any feedback from actual teenagers. I have had feedback from people who are my, roughly my age who were there. And I have to admit, when the book came out, I had a sudden moment of terror thinking... Maybe I've offended, you know, the whole population of Brookmans Park um, for decades. Um, people might be outraged. But literally every single person who's contacted me has said, oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, lots of, I've had messages through Facebook. People have tweeted me. Uh, yeah, so that's been really reassuring. Going I mean, back, I do... Sorry, yes. Did it feel really small? Yes. It did feel small. And... You know, I, I went back on a couple of visits to do research, um, having not been back for a very long time. And, you know, I'm honest at one point about the fact that when I first walk around the village, I, as much as I'm standing there going, oh, God, I'm back in this place, it's freaking me out, I really quickly felt very at home. Uh, and it felt so familiar. And, you know, there is something about that very small, safe, contained suburban environment that if it's what you grew up with to me I still kind of revert to thinking oh yeah actually this feels quite safe um so that was that was odd I I I, I when I when I started the book I, I think I felt it was going to be um quite an angry book and I was very worried about it becoming dismissive of a whole type of place and a whole type of person you know that here I am I've moved to that London now and here's the awful ghastly little place I came from and I really didn't want it to be that because you know a it formed me and b as I said as I've got older I've begun to understand precisely what it was that made my parents move there so again when I finished it, I did say to my editor right you've got to tell me if this comes across at all as being like a kind of, you know, snooty looking down on suburbia, then I need to edit it. And he said, no, no, it doesn't. Um, there's, you know, there is some love in there mm, as well. Nice. Um, as much as there's these kind of howls of boredom and anger, I, there are lots of admissions. I say at the end, you know, I've got suburban bones. Um, you can't ever quite shake off the place that forms you. Hi, Tracy. Uh, this is a bit of a personal question, but you'll forgive me as a kid that grew up in and around Kentish Town. Oh. There's still a rebel in you, and just tell me, did you get the scissors out to the bottom of your trousers, or oh. did you buy them like that? I bought them like that. That's oh. fashion for you. I know. I paid good money to a designer to do that to my trousers. I know, in the old days, I would have done it myself. I know. Oh, God, I wish I could say yes to that. That would be a better answer. <laughs> Wells, 
Hi, I just wondered whether your um, teenage children, I think you said you have, have read your book and whether it's changed their opinion of their mother. <laughs> it's, they, ha they have read Well, I've got two girls who are now 21 um, and they've both read it. And then a, the youngest boy is 18 and he's really not a great reader. So he read the first sort of three pages um, and said to me, yeah, you're a really good writer, mum. And I went, thanks, hun. And I think he felt that was all he needed to read was <laughs> to get the idea. Um, the girls both read it, but, you know, it's... I think people often think that if you write things, you then expect um, a lot of feedback from people around you about them, but, but about what you've written. But I don't know. I think people should be able to read it and then just sort of take it away and digest it, and especially when it's personal stuff about you. Um, it may well be that, you know, it's given my kids some thoughts about me, but I, I wouldn't sort of pick their brains about that and expect them to, you know, offer me feedback on my work. So I don't know. Um, I really love what you were saying about the, the school discos, and this is an experience which has just kind of dropped out of kids' lives now. Um, and as a musician and um, an owner of teenagers, I just wondered what your thoughts were about how um, how the experience of music has changed for kids, how much less communal it's become. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting to, to see how my children experience music and yes. share it. There aren't there aren't discos, there aren't clubs. I suppose festivals. It's, it's well, a completely different landscape. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think look, it is different. Definitely. And obviously, you know, a lot of what I write about here is the experience that comes out of all this boredom and frustration is that I discover music and it's my salvation. And a lot of people who've responded to me about the book have said, yes, me too. I think generationally, you know, it was, you know, it was a really big thing. And that sense of having an actual proper counterculture that the grown-ups didn't like and didn't understand and that just belonged to us. And I suppose that was true, what, from the late 60s, certainly through the 70s, kind of into the 80s, and then from about the 90s onwards, it starts to fade because you have parents. the horror of cool parents. And it's just a simple truth now that for, you know, the generations of parents who are that sort of age, we just don't disapprove of our kids' music. Um, so they've got lots of things to contend with. They've got the fact that music is so widely available that it's been robbed of some of its kind of preciousness to them. They're swamped in music, like we all are, and no one disapproves of anything they listen to. Less tribal, yeah. Well, I think they still they still fall into different camps mm -hmm. a bit. You know, there's still some kids who are perhaps a bit more into kind of indie rock, and the other kids who are a bit more into you know rap. Um, but it's nowhere near as delineated as it was. And the thing is, it's just not as important to them because they've got so many other things. They're not the trapped, repressed little people that we were. So they don't need it in the same way. And some, it's very easy, again, to get sentimental about that and think, oh, they're being deprived of something. But I don't know. If their starting point is that they're actually already in their lives in general, much better able to express themselves, to be themselves. They are much more liberated. Um, they're much freer. They're much less repressed. Then, you know, they don't have the same need for a band to, to do it all for them. So it can't be the same. I think that's just 
thing we have to accept. It can't be the same. I would like you to mm. end by reading one more. Is there a bit about, because I love the sections about your parents and you and them. Is there a... Oh, thank you. Oh. Is, is there a, a parental okay. passage you could end with? Let me see. Give me a sec. Hang Give on. you a second. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> um, Sorry to throw this uh, at you. Yeah, no, that's okay. Don't worry. I think there's it's a their fault for being overawed yes. and not asking you enough questions. Um, I, I could read a funny bit about my mum. That would be nice. Which is actually... Because one what, what of the, the, the powerful things that comes across in this is how close you were to your mum yes, when you I were was. really little. Yes. And that... Adolescence kind of <laughs> arriving like a steam engine. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, again, I started this book thinking, oh, it's going to be a howl of rage against my mum. And I realised that we were so close in so many ways. And I also, you know, I, I did more research and, and learned more about her. So I'll just read a little section about my mum being a London girl, having, you know, me sat here and ranted and raved about my awful suburban parents. Mum had always been clever. But in a family with three brothers and a Victorian father, there was no choice for her but to leave school at 15 and work for a few years as a secretary. In later years, when I was living in a terraced house in North London, she would say to my sister, I don't know why Tracy lives there, honestly. She could buy a castle in Scotland for the price of that house. <laughs> a bizarre thing to say, knowing that I loved living in London. And even more bizarre when I think that, as a young woman, she had loved it too. Growing up, she'd been sociable and outgoing. Slim and pretty, she loved dancing, liked to drink and a smoke, wore too much pancake makeup, which rubbed off on Dad's collar when they were courting. One night, while he was still in the RAF and before they were married, Dad came home unexpectedly on leave and arriving at her house was told by her mother that Mum had gone out dancing with someone else. Infuriated but determined, Dad turned up at the dance hall to confront her. The other man had just brought her a cherry brandy, so Dad insisted on buying her one too. I picture her there, with a cherry brandy in each hand, the two men glaring at each other, eyes locked in a duel, Mum feeling awkward and guilty, but probably thoroughly enjoying herself. And I think she was game. She was a laugh. I'd have been friends with her. Working as a secretary in Holborn, she and the other office girls would look out of the window at the working girls on the street below, trying to figure out what was the signal the girls gave to passing men, which would cause them to turn on their heels and follow them. She'd walk back home to Kentish Town through thick pea soup fogs and was adept at surviving as a young single woman on public transport. Once, a man sat too close, pressing against her in an intrusive way, and she said in a loud voice, Would you like to sit right on my lap? <laughs> this bold London girl would have understood perfectly why I didn't want to live in a castle in Scotland. Somewhere along the line, she just forgot. I ended up living half a mile from where she'd grown up, yet it had become completely alien and incomprehensible to her, like another planet. Wonderful.